those of you who don't know me, my name is Ron Deckard. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I accepted the Lord as my Savior many years ago, and my wife and I are members here at Windsor Roads, and we've been attending for approximately five years, and we meet with Steve Towner's small group. You also may have seen me up on stage before singing with Katie and more recently with Thomas. I love to sing and I love Jesus and I get to help my church family worship our Lord. It just doesn't get any better than that. On the 9th of July, 1974, close to midnight, I was standing on yellow footprints with 70 other guys in front of Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, California. I was waiting there with these other civilians to get my shoulder-length hair shaved off my head in the fastest haircut I had ever received. This event started 13 weeks of the most intensive physical, mental, and emotional and educational experience of my life, which I have not and will not ever forget. This also launched a 20-year career in the Marines. This training that all Marines go through is steeped in tradition and history. Part of that is the recruit training, and another part is the uniform. Just about everything on a Marine dress blue uniform has a history attached. The red stripe on the blue trousers signifies the bloodshed by Marine officers and NCOs at the Battle of Chapultepec in 1847, which is, by the way, you don't get to wear the blood stripe until you reach the rank of corporal. And if you make it through recruit training, and not everyone does, you get the, the right to call yourself a Marine and wear the Marine Corps emblem, which is the eagle, globe, and anchor. The eagle stands for the symbol of the country, the globe is worldwide service, and the anchor is our sea tradition. The motto of the Marine Corps is written on a pennant in the eagle's mouth. It is semper fidelis. It is Latin for always faithful. And as we were taught in recruit training, we are always faithful to God, to our country, and to the Corps. Every Marine understands that we could and would be sent into harm's way with a very real possibility of death, either from realistic training or from actual combat. Every Marine is willing to lay his or her life down for the country to preserve our way of life and our freedoms. But when it comes down to where the boots hit the ground, we are there more for each other. We put our life on the line to protect our fellow Marines, to have each other's back. What the Marine Corps has always had since its birth in 1775 is called esprit de corps. It's a group spirit, a sense of pride and honor shared by all Marines. I'll try to explain what that looks like to me. In the lower ranks, we were all the same. We spent a lot of time together. We were roughly the same age. We lived together. We ate together. We did everything together. During our off-duty time, we went out on the town and and in the process, or in that process, we forged many friendships. Bill Gardner was my closest friend. We were in the same series in recruit training. We went through technical school at Memphis, Tennessee, and follow-on training at El Toro, California. We ended up stationed in the same squadron at Cherry Point in North Carolina. Bill came home with me on leave in August of 1976 to be the best man at my wedding. And he was also godfather to our daughter April. Bill has since passed away, and, and that's another story in itself. 
but he still lives in my memories. In the Corps, enlisted ranks, when starting out, all you have to worry about is basically getting to work on time and doing your job well, performing up to Marine standards. As a young Marine in my occupational specialty, we took responsibility for each other, and we had 12 aircraft to maintain, and our pilots and flight crews put their lives in our, hand, in, in the, our hands every day on a daily basis. But as you gain rank, more expect, is expected of you, and you're given more and more responsibility. That increasing leadership means taking care of those you are in charge of. And if you stay in the, in the Marine Corps long enough, like I did, you find yourself having charge of 60 Marines. I was basically their mothers and fathers, and their problems became mine. I had to ensure that they were full mission capable in all ways, such as medically, and that they, their shot records were up to date and any medical problems were taken care of, that they made their dental checkups and that they were physically fit, that they maintained their uniforms and they were trained to do their jobs right. Any and other, other problems that they may have had, including getting calls at 2 o'clock in the morning to bail them out of the brig. Any family life that they had, any girlfriend problems, and unfortunately any alcohol or drug problems. Any one of which could, which could have been career ending. When I was line division chief stationed at Cherry Point, North Carolina, and a young Marine got in trouble, we had total control to inflict punishment. If my Marines got in trouble, then I took it personal. I felt that there was something I didn't instill in him or that I didn't train him properly. If I determined that he could be re rehabilitated on my watch, then I would go to bat for him. I would talk to the sergeant major and ask him to let me handle it. He was, after all, my responsibility. I would then pull him into my office, read him the riot act, and, advise and devise an adequate punishment for the infraction and ensure that he knew that handling this on my level saved his career and that he needed to take steps to ensure that this didn't happen again. And as far as I know, civilian bosses wouldn't go to bat that way for any of their employees. You know, when I look back at why I initially joined, it wasn't really for America that I did it. Although that was in the back of my mind. I wanted to fly, I wanted to work on aircraft, I wanted to see the world, to have an adventure, and I wanted a challenge, all of which I received tenfold. Later on, when I was coming on a decision to get out of the Corps or stay in, at that time, it was for my family, for the security of a job and a paycheck. And that my family would be taken care of should anything happen to me. My last reenlistment was when I knew that it, I liked teaching. I liked being an instructor. And in training young Marines, I was able to mold them into the kind of Marines that I wanted them to be. Men and women who have integrity, they are trustworthy, they are loyal, and they are skilled to do their jobs well and to help them pass on the history and traditions of the Marine Corps, the Esprit de Corps. The Marine Corps birthday is November 10th, 1775. And every year on November 10th, Marines worldwide celebrate the birthday of our Corps. Part of that celebration is the tradition of presenting a piece of birthday cake to the oldest and youngest Marine present, signifying the passing on of our history and traditions from the old Corps to the new Corps, to the next generation of Marines. 
I stand in front of you today as part of the old Corps, not as lean, not as mean, but still a Marine. And I'd like to say to all my Marine brothers and sisters throughout the world, both past and present, Semper Fi, and to all military personnel, thank you for your service, and may God bless. Well, each Memorial Day, we do remember the selfless sacrifice of our nation's men and women in uniform. And some have performed personal acts of valor so far and above and beyond the call of duty that the president awards the Medal of Honor in the name of Congress. Medal of Honor recipients have shielded comrades from live grenades. They've rescued the wounded under scorching enemy fire. And some have sacrificed with no weapons at all. I'm thinking of Captain Emil Joseph Capon, who served in the Korean War and who calmly walked through withering enemy fire to give comfort and medical aid to his comrades. When he and they were surrounded by the enemy, Capon, fully aware of his certain capture, elected to stay behind with the wounded. And he became a POW. And while a POW, with complete disregard for personal safety, he pushed aside an enemy soldier who was prepared to execute another American POW, thus saving his comrade's life. He gave his rations to the sick. He used his strength to serve and then finally died of pneumonia there as a POW while pastoring his flock of fellow POWs. That's right, pastoring. Because you see, Captain Emil Joseph Capon was a chaplain who served in the Korean War. And just this year, he was awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. Pictures, pictures of undaunted courage, pictures of unrelenting sacrifice, pictures which show us what true humility is. And it's this, humility is using my power in the service of others. Humility, humility is not, ah, shucks, folks. That's not humility. Humility is using my strength, my power, my resources, not for my selfish and self-centered purposes. Humility is using power and strength and resources in the service of others. And that's what makes every one of these pictures inspirational and patriotic. And I will tell you this, as inspirational as these pictures are, there is one picture which rises far above all the others. And I want you to see that picture today. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to be reading verses 5 through 11. You'll find Philippians 2 on pages 980 and 981 in your church Bibles. In the pouch in front of you uh, are copies of God's Word. 
Uh, and you'll find Philippians 2, 5 through 11 on pages 980 and 981. And if you don't have a copy of God's word to call your own, feel free to uh, just take that, put your name in it, and receive it as a gift from this church family. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote the letter to the Philippians, the church that gathered in Philippi, and while Paul himself was a prisoner, and here's what he had to say in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. As we look through these verses here this morning, church family, I'd like for us to consider two questions. First, what is the picture here that is being held up that far surpasses all other picture of humility and self-sacrifice? What is that picture? We, we, we come here and we gather in worship and maybe uh, this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road or you've been coming for a few weeks and you're thinking, you know, okay, what is God like? Who is God? What's the character of this person that everyone in here believes in and worships, what is God like? Well, these verses offer a very clear picture of who God is and what he's like. And, and I want us to talk about that picture because we will see it. And then I want us to see the point behind the picture. What's the purpose of this picture? What's the point we'll learn that the purpose of this is not just simply the dissemination of information, but rather the challenge towards transformation. God never just gives us his word to inform us. Rather, he gives us his word to transform us. And so, so let's first consider what this picture is. What is this picture of God? Well, this picture is a picture of a king. A king who descended into greatness. It's a picture of a king who became a servant. It's a picture of a king who journeyed from his heavenly throne to an earthly cross and then back to his heavenly throne. This Picture, which, which comes to us in the form of a, of a hymn, a Christian hymn. That's what verses 5 through 11 really are. These verses were actually sung and spoken and recited very early in Christianity as believers gathered in house churches. This was part of their liturgy. What we see here in these verses is not 
It's not an evolution of thought about Jesus who over decade after decade after decade kind of morphed from human to superhero deity. No, no. What we, what we read here is what the believers saw and experienced very early on from the beginning in Christianity. This picture of a king who descended into greatness. That's where Paul's going in verses 5 and 6 when he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Now what does that mean? In the form of God. It, it, it means that godness and deity and divinity All of these are at the core of who Jesus is. It means that Jesus possessed in full the essence and the privileges and the glory of God. It means that Jesus in his heavenly splendor was already at the top of the ladder. He he already had the corner office. He already occupied the supreme throne. And this is even stronger than if the apostle Paul would have written Jesus is God. You know, sometimes we get frustrated because we don't think that the Bible is clear when in fact, you know, we're living in a culture here and we're just trying to have the Bible fit into our words and our tastes and the fact of the matter is Paul is very quite clear because you see, anyone in the first century could have said that about themselves Anyone, Caesar thought he was God. Oprah says that today. Yet the apostle Paul makes it clear that Jesus' DNA, the core of who he was and is, is God. He possessed the very qualities that made him God. He was equal with God the Father. He was in the form of God. And this tells us something about the God we worship. You know, as you read through the New Testament It doesn't take very long until you get the idea that the New Testament, the Bible teaches that there is a threeness to the oneness of God. That that the God we worship is unique in that he is three persons in one being, our triune God. Now, I'm not talking about one plus one plus one equals three. I'm talking about one times one times one equals one. I'm talking about the kind of algebra that says 3x equals 1y. Three persons and one being. And this is unique among all of the religions on earth. This Trinitarian understanding of God. And it's certainly unlike um, Islam's understanding. For in Islam, Allah is one person, one being. Which means that Allah must create someone in order to love someone. Allah must form someone in order to be in relationship with someone. Allah must make in order to get. But the Judeo-Christian triune God of the Bible, our three-in-one God of Scripture, enjoyed perfect love, perfect unity, perfect fellowship. The community of the Trinity enjoyed perfect relational uh, harmony before creation, before angels, before humans. Our three-in-one God did not create Adam and Eve because he was lonely. He created because he's love. Self-giving, sharing love. 
This is our God. And Colossians chapter 1 specifically says that God the Son is the image of the invisible. For by him all things were created, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And in him all things hold together, which means this. Before he came to earth, Jesus was rich beyond splendor in the heavenlies. He he possessed all the majesty of deity. He performed all of its functions. He enjoyed all of its prerogatives. He was adored by the Father, worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration, embarrassment. He lived in unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction was complete. His blessedness was perfect. He had secured none of these rights by effort It was just simply the way things were and had always been. And there was no reason why they should change. None whatsoever. But they did change, didn't they? And why? Because of our sin, that's why. Humans committed high treason against this splendid king. And when our sin fractured and stained and separated us from God, Jesus did not prize his position or his deity or his status so much that he was unwilling to rescue us. That's what verse 6 says. He did not count equality with God A thing to be grasped. Although he was equal with God, he didn't insist on his rights. He didn't say, don't you know who I am? Never said that. He didn't go there. If if we're going to get these verses, we need to understand with absolute clarity this truth. Jesus had rights. He had rights. He had the right to be recognized. He had the right to be worshipped. He had the right to be served. He had the right to be honored. He had the right to be immune from suffering. He had the right to be treated in a way that reflected the dignity of his glory. He had the right. And he could have arrived on earth in a manner worthy of his rights. He could have arrived like our president does on Air Force One. Wow. What an entrance. Flanked by fighter jets, chauffeured in the beast, swarmed by the secret service, all in visible splendor. He had those rights. Jesus' arrival could have been announced uh, as the sergeant of arms announces the president before Congress. Mr. Speaker, the president of the United States. I get goosebumps. <laughs> he had those rights. And he chose not to cash in those rights or exercise those rights or claim those rights. He elected not to grasp at those rights. Instead, he emptied himself. Verse 7, he emptied himself. What was that like? 
Does that mean that Jesus gave up a percentage of his deity? What, was he now like half and half? What? No, it's not. No. The way to understand this phrase, he emptied himself, the key is to know that it's not what he emptied himself from, but what he emptied himself into. He emptied himself into the very world he created. Furthermore, Jesus emptied himself not by what he took away, but by what he took on. Not, he emptied himself not by what was subtracted, but by what was added. He became what he had never been without ceasing to be what he always was. And that was a servant. Verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The royal son assumes a new relationship with his father. He is now a slave, a servant, a doulos, a non-person, someone with no rights whatsoever. So he can't cry out to those who crucify him, don't you know who I am? And furthermore, all this took place in human flesh. Verses 7 and 8. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Now, I mean, it's, it's not saying that he just kind of appeared to be a human. That's not what Paul's saying there. It's that there was nothing visually extraordinary about Jesus that would lead anyone to think that he was anything more than a human by just looking at him. It's not like he walked around with a halo. It's not like he you know, was radioactive and just glowed everywhere he went. He was human, which means he sweat, and he got the flu, and he had body odor and bad breath and pimples, and he got blisters and splinters and sore muscles, and it means he got sleepy and hungry and thirsty, and it means he was tempted. There's not one temptation that you've experienced that Jesus hasn't, be it greed, power, pride, money, sex. And by the way, a pastor and author named Tim Keller notes that, you know, the last people on the face of the earth who could be persuaded that Yahweh had indeed come in the flesh would be Orthodox first century Jews. I mean, their system of theology just wouldn't allow it until he appeared. Until the majesty and the glory and the grace of God appeared. And so, I mean, can you imagine for them to be persuaded that Yahweh had put on skin? Jesus must have been a remarkable person. His... his, his teaching, his level of character, the quality of his personality, his morals, his intellect, his relational skills. My goodness, at last, here was a somebody. And in a world where people were so worried about how they looked and 
who they were and trying to be somebody instead of a nobody, here comes the one who truly was a somebody and he put himself into a position which virtually guaranteed that he would be misunderstood and mistreated and underestimated. And then after putting on the veil of humanity and the veil of servanthood, verse 8 reveals the final veil, the most violent one of all. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now you and I, 21st century Americans, we buy crosses, we hang them around our necks, we put them up on walls, or we embed them in concrete. And... But I'm telling you, in the, very, in the first century, no first century Roman citizen would dare utter the word cross in public company because that was just bad form. The horror of the cross buried the splendor of Christ so deep that it just became impossible for for flesh and blood to see who he really was. I mean, that's why he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Battered and abandoned, he looked like anybody but God. He barely looked human. He looked like a hell-bound thug. He looked like an atheist and a blasphemer. And then he died. The very last word in verse 8 is the word cross. Because that is what always happens when you are pinned to the cross. This is who we worship. Jesus, who emptied himself. He emptied himself into creation. He emptied himself into human flesh. He emptied himself into being a servant. And he emptied himself into death on a cross. And still he emptied himself further. Because you see, he emptied himself, but he did not raise himself, did he? See, nowhere in the scriptures does it say that the Son raised himself. Oh, no. Scriptures say that the Father raised him. Only the Father would do that. What a breathtaking risk. Jesus totally entrusted himself to the care and love of his heavenly Father. Had the Father not raised Jesus, that body would still be in the tomb. But he did, didn't he? Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him. God has super exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The highest name in the Hebrew mind was the name Yahweh. And here Jesus has the name Yahweh above every name so that if the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is who, we, this is who our God is. In humility, Jesus sacrificed himself for us. In humility, he used his power and his strength and his resources in the service of others. In humility, he traded the homage of angels for the hatred of enemies. And in complete disregard for his own safety, he took the grenade of sin in his cross-pierced hands and he absorbed its blast with his body. That's the picture. The picture of the king who became a servant, who left his heavenly throne and mounted an earthly cross only to be super exalted back to his throne. This is our God. That's the picture. That's why it's above and beyond any other picture of any other sacrifice. But there's a point to that picture. It's, the point is not just for information's sake. The point is for transformation's sake. The, the purpose of the picture is that God wants his church, God wants this church for whom his son died to then imitate the humility of his son. The king became a servant so that his servants would live like the king, so that they would act like the king, so that they would love like the king so that they would think like the king. Paul did not rehearse this hymn just to give us information about Jesus. Paul had a point. It's in verse 5. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verses which were first written to a very status-conscious culture in the first century. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. Philippi was a piece of Italy in Greece. Some have said that Philippi was the most Roman of all the Roman colonies. So if you were from the east and you stepped into Philippi, you could just breathe the air. And it was as if you were in Rome itself. It was a, it was a city of retired Roman soldiers and officers. And it was a very status-driven city, a very highly stratified Roman society. And, and so Philippi was filled with proud people eager to publicly display their rank and social class. They were climbers. They were graspers. That's what they were. And in the face of this class-conscious society, Paul uses the S word and the C word, the slave word and the cross word. Anathema to citizens of the empire. Yet Paul is challenging these believers, stop looking at your culture. Look to your king. Look to Christ. Stop grasping. Start serving. Might that be a good word for us? We who are not equal with God count equality with God as something to be grasped. But Jesus, though equal with God, he descended to the bottom of the ladder he emptied himself. Philippi was full of itself. Jesus played the servant. Philippi played the king. Could that be true of any of us? Could any of us be guilty of grasping? Let's see. Many time we've ever said, I've got my rights, that's grasping. 
Many times we've ever said, well, I'm not going to apologize to them. They're going to have to come to me. They want this settled. That's grasping. Many times we ever say, I know what God's word says, but I've got to do what makes me happy. That's grasping. And Jesus found his name by losing it. And, you know, when we try to get a name by grasping, the worst thing that can happen is, is for us to get to the top of the ladder because then we, we don't even know who we are. And what we are is full of pride because that's where grasping comes from. It becomes, comes from a heart of pride. And church family, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility, though, is your greatest friend. Pride is of Satan. Humility is of the Spirit. In pride, we want to compare ourselves to others so that we can feel better in our puny little kingdom of one. But in humility, ought we not compare ourselves to the one king? Pride covets the success of other people. Humility celebrates the success of other people. Pride holds power for self. Humility holds power to serve others. Pride is about what I have done. Humility is about what Jesus has done. Pride is about my glory. Humility is about the glory of Christ. Pride says, I am God. Humility says, no, Jesus is God. And pride is the mother of all sin. Humility is the mother of all joy. And pride can be achieved in this life, right? But humility is what we must continually pursue in this life. You never arrive at humility. You're on the path of humility. You pursue humility, but you don't get there. I mean, no one can say, I am proud to report how humble I become. You just, that doesn't doesn't work, does it? All we can say is that by God's grace, I am a proud person pursuing humility. Church, I need to hear this. I need this. Um, My ego has never needed steroids. And I think the hardest place for me to exercise humility is when I get home in my marriage and with my family. This is is the easiest place we're ever going to be humble right here, right now, in this room. It just gets harder once we leave those doors, right? But humility is what we must pursue because humility is what garners the attention of our God. Do you know that? You want to get the attention of God? You want God to to just, you know, kind of fix his gaze upon you? Listen to what Isaiah 66, 2 says. The Lord says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This This is the one, literally, this is the one to whom I will gaze. Do you want to get the gaze of God? 
He who is humble. He who uses his strength, her strength, their resources in the service of others. Jesus was and is the only one who ever did this perfectly. He's the perfect example of sacrificial humility. And so Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say, now here's seven tips for a more humble life, or here's five ways you can be, you know what he does? He just says, Jesus, Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. Have the same mindset as Jesus. Talk like Jesus. Speak like Jesus. Relate like Jesus. Think like Jesus. What would it look like for our church to do that? You know, as a family, what would that look like? To practice humility. To to use our strength and resources in the service of others. What would that look like? We know what this looks like. By God's grace, two missions teams are going to be sent out this summer. We're going to be praying over them in just a moment to the Dominican Republic and to Ethiopia. You may not be able to go to either of these countries, but I'll tell you where you can use your resources and strength in the service of others. Next Saturday is when our Habitat for Humanity house build is launched, and so... Every weekend, you know, 12, 13 weekends until the house is done, we are asking 20 of you to come and to give a Saturday. And maybe that would look like your small groups, three or four small groups um, coming together and serving, using your strength for the benefit of others. You can sign up on our church website. and You go to the church website at windsroad.org and uh, you see Habitat right on the front page. And we're looking for servants who are willing to use their strength in the service of others. Um, three months before the end of World War II in Europe, 18-year-old Sergeant Joseph George of Pennsylvania, he was stationed in France Sergeant George had already been blown off a torpedoed ship in the English Channel. He, at 18 years of age, he was scared. He wanted to go home. He and his company were hoping to locate landmines buried by the Germans, and he was just fatigued, and he was afraid. But there was a private in his company, Private Caudill, Cottle was almost 20 years older than him, 36 years of age. He said, Sergeant, I'll take it for you. You know, you're young, go home, get married, live a rich, full life. And Sergeant George, okay, all right, I'll let you go for me just tonight. Private Cottle did. He went out on patrol. Two hours later, a sniper killed him. He used his resources in the service of others. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this than he lay down his life for his friends. 
chances are you're not going to get picked off by a sniper this week. Yet these verses are calling us to daily die to ourself, to daily die to the flesh, to every day die to our egos. Someone once said, ego builds a cardboard fortress that humility every day must tear down. So then tear it down.